Well, please turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll begin by reading just the first 14 verses, but meditating on uh, the whole passage this morning. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 656, Jeremiah chapter 29. Beloved saints, all scripture is given by God's inspiration and it is profitable to us for our teaching, our correction, our instruction, and our training in righteousness. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And since the reading of God's word at this point, let us ask the Lord to bless our time in Jeremiah this morning. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within the scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word, open our eyes and our hearts uh, to behold King Jesus and who, whom we meet and whom we find there and give us faith to receive all that we hear and see, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, verse 11, I'm sure, sounded familiar 
uh, to many of you. It is one of the best known and most often quoted verses in the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a wonderful, it's an encouraging verse, and it's not hard to see why it's so dearly loved. Uh, But uh, there's a catch. There's always a catch, right? There's a context in which we find this verse. And it's rich, and it's an important context. But sadly, that context is often neglected when this verse is quoted when it's recited, and sometimes this verse is even used to promote the very false teaching it's actually confronting in our passage. And so today we want to look at this verse in context and see not only what God told the Israelites so long ago, but what he wants us to learn from it this morning. Uh, Jeremiah addresses a people in exile dwelling outside their homeland. And typically when people are in exile, when they've been displaced, when they're not in their homeland, they have three different reactions. One of three different reactions, probably not all three. Uh, The first reaction people might have to being displaced is rejection. And they do everything they can to isolate themselves from the people whom they are living among. They don't learn the language. They don't participate in civic life. So they either congregate in ghettos uh, or monasteries or communes or something like that, but they try to isolate themselves as if they weren't displaced. They see themselves as only aliens in the land. They don't want to be anything like those they are around, and they hide. On the opposite extreme... Uh, is identification. They don't reject where they've gone. They identify with it. And that can look like one of two things. Either uh, they abandon their previous identity and fully embrace the new. They uh, refuse to speak their old language. Or they, they fully embrace all the new customs uh, of the land in which they're living. Or <laughs> they simply try to take over the land in which they're living Uh, and make it a colony of the land from which they've come. Either way, they don't see any way for the two to coexist. One must devour the other. These see themselves not as aliens, but as citizens, one way or the other. And somewhere in between these two realities is acceptance. It acknowledges that you're going to be there for a while, and that you neither need to abandon the old nor hide from the new. It seeks to maintain your important heritage while not being afraid to learn the language, get a job, and engage in trade with your new neighbors. And those who take this approach understand what it means to be a resident alien, someone who's going to be there for a while, though not a citizen, someone who's not truly a part of that land, but lives there and is called to be a productive part of society. And it's this last approach that God calls the Jews to while they are in exile in Babylon, and he really calls all his people to when they are in exile. And that has implications for us on how we are to live in this world as citizens of heaven. That's what we really want to delve into, unpack, and look at this morning 
as we meditate upon Jeremiah 29, my, uh, my main point, my one point that I want you to go away with today is this. Even though this world is not your home, as resident aliens you are called to seek its welfare. Even though this world is not your home, as resident aliens in this world, you're called to seek its welfare. And to, to see that, we really want to maybe do three subpoints, something like this. First, we want to see what's going on in our passage. And then we want to press a little deeper and ask what this passage assumes about God. And then finally, we want to wrestle with, with what all of that means for us. What's going on with the Jews, what this, what this assumes about God, and how this affects our lives today. So what is going on? Well, last week we looked at chapter 25, and we saw God say that because his people had not heeded his warning uh, through the prophets, uh, and, and that final warning through Jeremiah, that 70 years of judgment was coming. He was going to send them away into Babylon for 70 years. He was going to send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to conquer his own people and take them into exile, captivity, in another land. And we saw that behind that judgment actually lay a plan to restore and bring them back. But first, judgment was coming. We're skipping over a few chapters, but I'll summarize them real quick. Chapter 26 uh, includes one more warning and called repentance from Jeremiah with an offer still yet to avoid judgment. And the people respond with a plot to kill Jeremiah. (laughs) Not quite the repentance he was hoping for. Their reasoning was he's prophesying the the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's treasonous. (laughs) And then they remembered, oh yeah, Micah did that, and Hezekiah didn't kill him, so maybe we shouldn't kill Jeremiah, and they let him live. Then in chapter 27, God repeats his decision to send Nebuchadnezzar and conquer them. And then chapter 28 finally brings that captivity, that judgment that's been warned about. The exile has come. And so now in Babylon, in chapter 28, we read about this prophet, Hananiah, self-appointed prophet, who proclaims to the people, don't worry, it's only going to be two years and then we'll be headed home. (laughs) He basically says, don't get comfortable. We'll be out of here before you know it. God put Hananiah to death for presuming to speak in God's name without permission. That's chapter 28. And it's into this reality that God is calling Jeremiah to bring some clarity. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, but many of the Jews are now in Babylon. And so he writes them a letter with instructions on how to live as exiles. And those instructions are found in verses 4 through 7. At first, the instructions sound a little surprising. Jeremiah says, build houses, plant gardens, get married, and have children. Not quite what you expect for instructions in captivity. That sounds like instructions for life at home. That's life as normal. Basically, God is saying, you're going to be there for a while. You might as well get comfortable. When you're only going to be someplace for a little while, for a short time, you don't unpack. You live out of a suitcase. You 
don't start building projects. You don't plant gardens. You don't get married and plan weddings. But God wants them to know that being displaced doesn't mean that they should put their lives on hold. They still need to eat, so they better plant gardens. They still need shelter, so they better build houses. They still need to multiply, to propagate, and so they better get married and have families. Now, if those first instructions were a little surprising, what follows is a downright shock. God says in verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare is your welfare. These are Israel's enemies. They have a long history of antagonizing and afflicting God's people. And now God says, pray for them, that things would go well for them. Pray for their welfare. And what's worse is the Hebrew word translated welfare is probably a word familiar to you. It's shalom. Pray for their shalom. That's a very powerful word in the history of God's people. In the life of Israel, shalom conveys a unity and peace with God. The idea of a life of shalom is a life characterized with things being the way they ought to be, life as it should be between God and man. Shalom implies blessing, a unique blessing. Shalom is typically something understood to be the, the, the sole possession of Israel. It's the same word translated in verse 11. I know my plans for you. Plans for shalom and not evil. To give you a future and a hope. And here... God tells the Jews to pray for the peace, the shalom of their captors. Most of the rest of the chapter warns the exiles about false prophets. Verses 15 through 32. There will be those who will rise up and tell the people that their suffering will be quick. They will announce impending deliverance. They'll say things like, God's will for you is for comfort and prosperity. He's not going to let you endure hard times. And that's what Hananiah proclaimed in chapter 28. Hananiah believed that God's love for his people meant that they would enjoy blessing without judgment. And here Jeremiah is saying, that's not how it is. God will bless you after he judges you, or maybe even he will bless you through the judgment he brings. You see, false prophets will always promise triumph without pain, always offer glory without a cross. They will claim that God's love for his people means that he will spare them from all affliction, all hardship, that his desire is for their health, and their prosperity economically, for their social success. 
They'll say things like, God wants you to be successful and prosperous. You just have to let him. Just claim the rewards waiting for you. They'll say things like, the church is going to take this world over. We will occupy our rightful place as, as children of God. We will hold the seat of power in this world. We will be the power brokers. But in the end, the only thing false prophets do is utterly destroy peace and contentment. Because they tell their hearers that peace, security, prosperity, and happiness are their birthrights. And so if they're going through hard times if they're struggling to make ends meet, if sorrow and mourning are are in their lives or even regular visitors in their lives, if their health is failing, then something's wrong. And that these things are not from the hand of God. Really, false prophets will always stir up self-pity. When you listen to false prophets, you will always feel like the victim. You'll see the hardships in your life as being unwarranted and unfair. You'll look at the state of society and politics and always believe it should be better than this. And to be sure, there's a kernel of truth in that. But when you believe that it should be better now, that you deserve better, that the world owes you more, that God owes you more, when you believe those things, you will never find contentment. You will never be at peace because everyone, all the way up to God, will always be in your eyes letting you down and failing you. But there's a certain appeal to being a victim, a certain temptation to take pride in unjust suffering because it strokes your ego because it says, I I deserve better. I'm entitled to more. But that, that just makes you ripe for false teachers. They'll feed that sense of entitlement. They'll appeal to it. They'll draw you in. But the end of that road is always disappointment, frustration, and disillusionment. And so in verses 8 through 14, God warns his people, do not listen to false teachers. God says, I'll I'll bless you. I'll restore you. I will establish my shalom upon you, my peace and welfare upon you. I know my plans for you. I will bring you home from captivity, but after 70 years. After you learn to turn from your sin. After you learn to call out for me and seek me with your whole heart. This is God's instructions to the exiles. Now it's one thing to see what the text calls them to. It's, it's another uh, to see what lies behind it. The the instructions aren't hard to understand, but there's something more going on than simple instructions. Because they reveal to us something about the one who is giving them. They teach us something about God. One thing that keeps coming out 
is it is God who has taken them into captivity. It didn't catch him by surprise. They're not in captivity because he was unable to stop Babylon. (laughs) He kept saying, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. I'm going to appoint him and send him to take you. God had a purpose. He led them into captivity for a reason. The passage will not allow us to believe that God is afraid of bringing adversity into the lives of his people. We have to understand and accept that God can and will use pain to shape us. He will absolutely 100% lead us someplace that is uncomfortable if it is what is best for us. And he's not afraid to leave us there for a while. The second thing this passage assumes about God, it teaches us about him, is that allowing his people to be brought low does not mean that he is done with them. From the beginning, he has told them that their time of captivity, though long, will not be permanent. In verse 14, he promises to restore them to their homes. And really, it could be no other way. God had promised Abraham that his children would possess the land. He promised David that his sons would sit on the throne after him. And we know this about God. He is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So it's his faithfulness that commits him to restoration. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy. I love it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God has bound himself by an oath to his people. He can discipline them. He can take them into judgment for a time, but he can't abandon them. Another thing we see in our passage is that God is not limited by geography. Now that might seem obvious to us, but it hasn't always been obvious to people. In the ancient world, it was very common. Uh, They didn't live quite in the global community we live in today. (laughs) Every region was was isolated and and self-contained, and that included their religion. It was common to believe that there were different gods for different nations, different lands, different regions. But verse 7 tells the people in Babylon to pray to the God of Israel. And the expectation is God will hear you from your captivity, from your exile. He's not limited by geography. In fact, he commands them to multiply while in captivity. Verse 6 which is, of course, clearly echoing what happened to Israel the last time they were in captivity in Egypt. They grew so great in number that they became a threat. Some of Israel's greatest growth has happened when they were not in their own land, when they were in captivity and in chains. The temptation is to think that because God's people are displaced or enslaved, God can't prosper and bless them there. And this passage, as well as many others, answers such foolishness God's discipline does not constrain his work or his blessing. 
In fact, it is often the very vehicle through which his blessing comes. And that leads to the final lesson about God from our passage. It shows us that God is not just for the Jews, but he's the hope of the Gentiles as well. He commands his people to pray for his shalom, his peace, to be upon their enemies. In other words, more is at work in this passage than simply his plan for the Jews. Through their rebellion, he is taking his word and his grace and his mercy to other nations. People who are not Jews by birth will come to faith in the true God because of Israel's rebellion and their discipline and being sent into a foreign land. Before God restores his people, he will first call Gentiles to faith. That's but a foretaste of what God would do about 600 years later. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he reflects upon Israel's later disobedience in the days of Jesus. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. To say that God is not limited by geography means that he has plans for people of every tribe and every nation and every tongue on this earth. He's the God of all and the hope of all. He's not just the God of the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Now again, it might be tempting to say, well, of course, we know that. But to many, that seemed new and novel when it was proclaimed by the apostles. But it shouldn't have seemed new and novel because it's the message of Jeremiah 29. It's what we see going on in our passage before us. Before we close our time in this chapter this morning, I'd like to make a few reflections on what this means for us. First, if you are a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven and an alien in this world. Peter uh, goes so far as to refer to us as exiles in this world. We heard it even in our call to uh, worship this morning, or the the apostolic greeting this morning, to the beloved exiles. So how does God address exiles, if that's what we are? He addresses them, uh, doesn't call them to reject uh, their, their reality. He doesn't call them to identify fully with it. He calls them to be resident aliens. He doesn't say run and hide, isolate yourself, and have no contact with those around you. Neither does he say lose your distinctiveness and become just like the world. He doesn't say take control and make this your new home. Build heaven on earth. He says build homes, plant gardens, get married, have a family. You're going to be here for the foreseeable future. but don't lose your distinctiveness. 
But his instructions go further. He tells you to seek God's shalom, his peace for those who afflict you. Jesus would say it this way. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that any different than God's instructions to the Jews in Babylon? It's so easy to take an adversarial posture towards those who are not like us. We need to have hearts that long for them to know our God and to know his peace. We need to be praying for them. And if we're not, if we're seeking only their judgment and their destruction, then our hearts are radically out of accord with the God we claim to follow. And that includes our leaders. Our God commands that we pray for those in government, including... First Timothy 2, look it up, I'm not lying, says give thanks for your leaders. I know. It's hard. It's easier to say, I deserve better. They're letting me down. But if we Christians spent half as much time praying for our leaders as we do ridiculing them, this world might be a radically different place. False teachers will lead us to play the victim. They'll teach us to expect and to demand more. God will teach us humility, gratitude, and patience. Jeremiah 29.11 is a wonderful verse. It's full of hope and promise. The last thing I want you to do is stop quoting it. (laughs) Memorize it. Quote it. Hold it dear. But understand its context. Because it will help you to see that this verse is far richer than you ever imagined. It reveals a God who can't be controlled but loves to show kindness and mercy and grace. Even if that means going through judgment to get there. Isn't that the message of the cross? Isn't the message of Jeremiah 21 made most visible in the fact that God himself was willing to suffer judgment in order to bless his people? How could we ever believe such a God would be afraid to allow hard times to come upon us? How could we ever be fooled into believing that there is a road to glory that avoids the cross? I think it's for that reason that God calls us continually before his table so we might never lose sight of the cross because in the bread and the wine, the death of Christ on the cross is made visible for us each week. So that we might remember that Jesus was never at home in this world and neither will we. But while Jesus was here, he did not hide. He sought to accomplish much good and to show mercy to the very ones who would afflict him. As resident aliens, let us follow in his footsteps. I'd like to ask uh, the elders, Pastor Brian, to come up that we might receive the Lord's Supper.
this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our God and Father, you constantly show yourself to be a patient God, a faithful God, a loving Savior, one who pursues those who mistreat you. We thank you and we praise you and we ask that you make us more like you, that you would teach us to love our enemies, that you would teach us to pray for those who mistreat us, that you would teach us to love as we have been loved. All of this we ask through our Savior, Jesus Christ. May his name be praised. Amen.